listening to an audio sermon from Harvest Bible Chapel, Kelowna. For more information about our church, please visit harvestkelowna.ca. Well, you may be seated. Thank you, uh, worship team, for leading us. It's great. Uh, My name is Steve, and I am just thrilled to be here. Uh, um, Drove down from uh, Sunny Bray. Anybody know where Sunny Bray is? Five of you. Good. Sunny Bray is just... uh, west of uh, Salmon Arm, about 15 minutes. And so I had the privilege of driving down this morning uh, and it was raining this morning up there. Yeah, the ushers are handing out Bibles. So if you need a Bible, you just raise your hand and uh, they'll make sure that you have one and that'll be a gift to you. If you don't have a Bible, just keep that and, uh, and take it home and read it. That's important. God has spoken to us. Isn't that an amazing thing that God speaks to us today? And his primary way of speaking is through the word of God. So anyway, driving down, rain finally. I think it's been 43 or 44 days up in Salmon Arm that we've not had rain. I'm guessing it's similar here in uh, Kelowna. Hot, dry, lots of smoke. And uh, so we're just trusting the Lord to, to do his, uh, his work of grace by sending relief to the firefighters, of course, as well. But what a joy to be here. I want to thank, um, obviously, Pastor Melton, who's not here uh, for the invitation to come. I've uh, just uh, with great joy followed uh, the, the um, leading of God in Melden's life as uh, they've begun, I think it was 2014, is that right? When Harvest sort of officially began? Can somebody, is that right? Yes? Now, these seats are amazing, but boy, I'll tell you, what a temptation for you, right? I mean, these, these, this is comfort to the fullest. I need to come watch a movie here, but I, my, my fear is the older I get, the harder it is for me to focus on, on the screen and watch a movie, I fall asleep at the best of times, so this would not be good. And so I really do, I'm going to pray for you that you'd be able to stay awake, that you'd have the discipline to stay with me this morning. But this is normal to you, so I'm, I'm sure it's not a, a problem. But it's just been a joy for me to, to, to watch and, and follow the work of Harvest Kelowna and the work that God's doing in your lives and, and in your church here and in this region. And so I want to thank Pastor Melden. And Shayan's been unbelievable. We've been in communication the last couple of weeks, and he does such a great job. I just sent him stuff, and now that's what you get. And uh, so I thank him and the team this morning for uh, the ministry already and uh, that our hearts have been tuned upward. I, my heart is always encouraged when I get to go to a church where the songs are vertical. You know what I mean by that? where the songs are springboards for us to think about Jesus and about God and his majesty and all that he's done for us. And um, so I'm thankful for uh, Harvest Kelowna and for Shayon's ministry and the team here for, for uh, uh, pointing us towards Jesus. Um, back in 1955, there was a Sunday school teacher by the name of Mr. Kimball. And he was a Sunday school teacher in the Congregational Church in Boston. And um, as he was teaching this group of young men, uh, he was convicted by the Spirit of God that he, he needed to go talk to this one particular young man about the gospel, about Jesus, and about God's work in this young man's life. And after praying uh, about a time to meet and arrange a time to get together, um, he uh, decided to visit this young man at a boot store where this young man worked. And this is what Mr. Kimball wrote. I was determined to speak to him about Jesus and about his soul. And I started down to Holton's boot store. When I was nearly there, I began to wonder whether I ought to go in just then, go in just then during business hours. I mean, this is the way it is. Oftentimes when the Spirit of God starts to work in our hearts and starts to prompt us to go a certain way, that the enemy comes and starts casting doubt in our life, in our mind. And, and the truth is, 
often we don't even need the devil's help with that. Because we're good enough in ourselves, in our flesh, to sort of question and wonder, God, are you really prompting me to go to, to this boot store to talk to this young man? And that was Mr. Kimball's thinking. And as I thought, my, uh, I thought my call might embarrass the boy, and that when I went away, the clerks would ask who I was and taunt him with my efforts in trying to make him a good boy. In the meantime, I had passed the store. So he's walking along. He's thinking, I need to go in there. And then there's these doubts. And, and as he's thinking about this, he walks right past the store front. And discovering this, I determined to turn around and make a dash for it and have it over at once. Let's just get this over. God, you're, you're working my life. I'm going to be obedient, but I'm going to just get it over with. And so he dashes into the store. And uh, there he finds this young man. I found him in the back part of the building wrapping up shoes. I went up to him at once, and putting my hand on his shoulder, I made what I felt afterwards was a very weak plea for Christ. I don't know just what words I used, nor could he tell. I simply told him of Christ's love for him and the love Christ wanted in return. That was all there was. I seen, it seemed the young man was just ready for the light that then broke upon him, and there in the back of the store in Boston, he gave himself and his life to Christ. Well, the next year, this young man who was saved in that boot store where he worked at the age of 19, moved to Chicago and began serving in some local churches. And a couple of years after that, in uh, 1860, he committed his life to full-time ministry and service, vocational ministry, and uh, became a prolific preacher. Uh, and an evangelist. And about 11 and 12, or 12 years after that happened, uh, this young man, and now in his early 30s, um, crossed the ocean and began ministry in England and in Scotland and Ireland. And in one of those meetings, while this uh, now, well, young man, still 30, I'm old compared to that. This young man, 30 years old, uh, he was preaching in Scotland. In, in one of these meetings, the gospel penetrated the heart of a young lad named William Miller. And he gave his heart to Jesus. And after serving in Africa and Scotland, this Mr. Miller came to Canada in 1910 and uh, ended up in Saskatchewan. And in 1932, Miller College of the Bible was born. Back then it wasn't called Miller College. Uh, Mr. Miller had passed away, I think, the year or two before that. And so it was called Miller Memorial Bible Institute. And then uh, changed to Miller College of the Bible. Now back to the Sunday school teacher. First, you know who that young man was who this Sunday school teacher led to the Lord? His name was D.L. Moody. And Melvin's uncle, Erwin uh, Lutzer, I'm sure he's referenced him. If he hasn't, you should ask him about him, was the pastor at Moody Church down in Chicago for many years and still, I think, is involved there somehow. Um, and, uh, and so under, under this conviction uh, that the Spirit of God put on this Sunday school teacher's heart, D.L. Moody came to know Jesus. And uh, we are eternally grateful on the Miller team that he obeyed God's prompting to go to Scotland where Mr. Miller heard the gospel and was saved and came to Canada and started Miller Memorial. It, used to, it was called Moose Jaw Bible Institute and then they moved to this little hamlet called Pamburn, Saskatchewan, and Meldon referenced that, and, uh, and, and the, the college began in 1932. And so that's kind of a little bit of our background at Miller, and I'm not here to talk to you about Miller, but what a great story. And would it be that God would place on your heart 
somebody to talk to, maybe this week. You just never know the kind of fruit that that's going to bear. And uh, about uh, 10 years ago, we were uh, sort of at full capacity at our Saskatchewan campus, and the Lord led us to begin this extension campus out in Sunnybrae, which is about, like I said, 15 minutes west of Salmon Arm. And uh, we are going to be starting, launching again our sixth year at Sunnybrae, and our home campus is full. We've got about 69 students coming this fall, Lord willing, out to to our uh, BC campus, and we're so grateful to God for, uh, for allowing us to be, for me, uh, I thank the Lord for uh, his, the privilege of being involved there. We moved from Winnipeg. Any, any prairie folk here? No? Yeah, yeah, there's a few, right? I mean, this is sort of the place where people from the prairies move. And so I'm really thankful to, to Jesus for moving us out to Salmon Arm. What a great place to live. Um, and I've already met some Miller alumni here too, which is pretty neat. So thanks for being here. Um, the story I told about uh, this Mr. Kimball kind of relates to what I want to talk to you about this morning. And as I prayed about the opportunity to come to preach to you this morning, the Lord uh, impressed on my heart to, to, to talk about the call to gospel-mindedness. There's a millionaire uh, art collector in New Mexico. His name is Forrest Fenn. Maybe you've heard of this guy. He's still alive, but in 1988, he was diagnosed with cancer and uh, this art collector millionaire uh, on, on his diagnosis of cancer back in the 80s uh, did something quite incredible. He put together, he decided that he'd like to put together a box, a treasure chest, and hide in that treasure chest some of his most valuable possessions. Uh, while Fenn actually ended up surviving this bout of cancer and did, didn't uh, hide this chest that he put together until seven years ago. And in 2010... Uh, Forrest Fenn actually did hide a treasure chest somewhere north of Santa Fe, New Mexico, in the Rocky Mountains. And the exact contents of the treasure are unknown, but a friend of Fenn's who helped assemble the prize uh, has revealed a little bit, and this is what his friend says, when you open the lid, it was all thrown in willy-nilly, just these huge heaps of massive gold coins. Who wouldn't like that? Um, uh, just a, I, even if it's willy-nilly, it doesn't have to be organized. Uh, gold nuggets the size of hen's eggs, jewels and gold bracelets, gold ornaments from South America, and everything glittering in the light. And the treasure is supposedly worth over $3 million. And the clues are adding up. And as of a couple of weeks ago, at least from some of the research I've done, this, this chest of treasure is still not found. Now, there are a few people who speculate that it might have been found, but There's been no uh, affirmation by Forrest Fenn himself that this chest has been found. Um, So, you know, maybe when we're done here, we pack up and head south and go on a big treasure hunt. It's an amazing thing. Fenn has written two books leading would-be seekers to the hiding place. And here's a poem that Forrest Fenn wrote with nine clues for treasure hunters. Let me just read it to you. As I've gone alone in there and with my treasure bold... I can keep my secret where and hint of riches new and old. Begin it where warm waters halt and take it in the canyon down. Not far, but too far to walk. Uh, Put on below the home of Brown. It's the name of somebody. B, capital B-R-O-W-N. From there, it's no place for the meek. The end is drawing nigh. There'll be no paddle up your creek, just heavy loads and water high. If you've been wise and found the blaze, look quickly down your quest to seize. But tarry scant with marble gaze, 
Just take the chest and go in peace. So why is it that I must go and leave my trove for all to seek? The answer I already know. I've done it tired and now I'm weak. So hear me all and listen good. Your effort will, will be worth the cold. If you are brave and in the wood, I give you title to the gold. Check it out on Google sometime. Forest Fen Treasure. It's an amazing thing. And there are actually, apparently this summer, the third person in, in uh, his quest to find this treasure lost his life. There have been three people in the last few years in pursuit of this treasure. They've, they've, they've gone to the point of, of losing their life. They've gone so far uh, to the point where they've gotten lost or they've fallen and something tragic has happened. And there's a treasure uh, story that Jesus told to. It's a, it's, it's a one-line story in, in the book of Matthew. And let me just read it to you. This is what Jesus says. He says, The kingdom of heaven is like a treasure hidden in a field which a man found covered up. Then in his joy, two sentences. Then in his joy, he goes and sells all that he has and buys the field. It's a parable that Jesus told. And this is a scenario that the, the people in his day would have understood. There were, in order to get from one community to another or from one place to another, people would often walk between fields that had been planted. And these paths would be trodden down. And, and you'd, uh, if I needed to get to Vernon, I would take one of these field paths. And, and so, so, so as Jesus is telling this story, I'm sure that the, the, the mind of the hearers would have been thinking about somebody walking along one of these fields. And, and, and the details are pretty scant here, but, but you can just imagine. He's walking along with his staff, and all of a sudden he hits some, this walker, this, this, this person who's on, a, on his journey, hits something with his staff, and he gets down on his knees, and he, he pulls the dirt aside, and he finds a chest, a treasure chest. And as he opens this treasure chest or this treasure that he finds, he recognizes that it's valuable. He covers it back up. And then these are the most amazing words that Jesus says. Then in his joy, he goes and sells all that he has and buys the field. So, I mean, you, you can imagine. You, you're out wandering or hiking somewhere here in the Okanagan and you find this, this treasure chest. And you open it up and you recognize this is worth a lot of money. And you go home and you sell everything that you have. Your house, your car, your boat, whatever it is, all your possessions. You put it up and, and you take the, the uh, assets of all of your sales and you purchase the field. Not that the field is valuable, but what's in the field is valuable. And as I, as I contemplate this little story, uh, I, I mean, the question that we should ask is, why is this guy joyful? Why is this person who's walking in the field and finds the treasure joyful. And why is he joyful to sell everything he has? I mean, that's a high call for all of us, right? If somebody were to come to you today and say, you need to sell everything you have, all of your possessions, everything you've got, just get rid of it. You'd have to say, well, well why? What, what, why would I want to do something like that? And the answer is that that which you're going to get is more valuable than what, what you have. Right? That which I'm going to let go of, that which I'm going to hold loosely in my hands, is way more valuable to me, or, or is way less valuable to me, than that which I'm going to purchase when I get rid of everything I have. And Jesus says, that's the kingdom of God. And we could synthesize, or, 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 or yeah, just synthesize that down to say, that's the gospel. And that specifically is Jesus. And, and when you get Jesus, you get everything. That's why... Jesus says, unless you're willing to leave everything you have, father, mother, 
homes. And if you're willing to do that and follow me, then you will enter the kingdom of heaven. And so Jesus calls us to that full abandonment of everything that we have. And, 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 and Jesus said it like this, and, and it, it resonates with all of us when he says in John chapter 6, I'm the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger, and whoever believes in me shall never thirst. You know, every person, all of you sitting here, and every person in Kelowna is hungry. You know that. They're in, deep in their heart, they are desperately hungry for something to satisfy them. We live right on the shoe swap, and it's, it's I mean, the, the cultures, I'm guessing, are pretty similar to down here in Kelowna, where you have the o- Okanagan Lake. And I mean, we have people who come up and spend two or three or four weeks on the shoe swap. They drive right past the camp and right past where we live, and they're pulling boats that are worth $120,000, you know, those Mastercraft and Malibu wakeboard boats, and, and in and of, of themselves, there's nothing wrong with that. But what, what, what compels somebody to spend millions of dollars on a, on, a, on, a, on a cabin at the lake coming out probably from Alberta, right? Are you from Alberta this morning? Yeah, there you go. So you've come out from Alberta, and, uh, and there are people, and not just Albertans, and a lot of BCers, and, they, and why do they, what, what compels somebody to do that? And, and you know what happens three, four years from now? they're going to have the new edition of that boat that they had this year. And, and like I said, in and of itself, there's nothing wrong with that unless you're looking to be satisfied with those things. And every person is hungry. And the people that Jesus is talking to, if you just back up a little bit into the context of this story, it's, it, it, it follows immediately the day before he fed 5,000 men, probably 12, 13,000 people altogether. He fed them with fish and loaves. Remember that story? And the next day, all these people show up again, and they're, they're thinking, man, Jesus fed us yesterday, and, you know, 12 hours later, I'm hungry again. Let's go get some more food from Jesus. He delivers. He, he's delivering the goods. And Jesus at this, and, and Jesus makes no mistakes ever. Jesus never makes mistakes. And I'm sure that he set the day before up so that he could say this. The next day, he says, you need to come to me because I'm the bread of life. And whoever comes to me will never hunger. And whoever believes in me will never thirst. And so there are people who you work with. There are people in your neighborhood. There are people uh, uh, in your family. Maybe you're here this morning and you're looking for something to satisfy your soul. And Jesus says, come to me and you're going to be satisfied. Find the treasure in the field. Sell everything you have because that's, that's not worth what you're going to get in Jesus. The psalmist, David, King David says it like this. You've made known to me the path of life. Listen, this is amazing. You've made known to me the path of life. In your presence is fullness of joy. And at your right hand are pleasures forevermore. So where am I going to find full? Can you get any fuller than full? Like if something is full... Fullness of joy, you can't get more than that. And forevermore, can you get longer than forevermore? And, and David says, you, God, you've shown me where I can get fullness of joy and pleasures forevermore. It's at your right hand. And the way we get to the right hand of God is through Jesus Christ. And so he's our treasure. He's the one that, that we pursue. And at the center of this possibility of joy and gladness and satisfaction is something we call the gospel. The word gospel simply means good news, and it's the good news that Jesus has made a way for all of us, you and me, 
through his dying on the cross to forgive us of our rebellion and our sin. All of us were born into this world with a rebellious heart. God tells us in his word that our hearts are dead when we're born into this world. And so we're born into this world, we're prone to sin, and we're rebellious against God, and that all started in the, in the Garden of Eden with Adam and Eve. And, and in our sin and rebellion, in the midst of that, Jesus enters into this world. This is not, if you come to harvest regularly, this is not new to you. But man, it's good news, isn't it? That Jesus comes and becomes one of us. He, he becomes flesh like you and me, and he goes to the cross, and there he takes the punishment for your rebellion and my rebellion, for our shaking our fist at God and saying, I'm going to do it my way. And because God is holy and absolutely righteous, uh, justice needs to be served, and wrath needs to be, his anger needs to be satiated, satisfied against sin. And Jesus takes that upon himself. It's an amazing, amazing, a glorious, we sang about it this morning, that the Lamb of God takes on himself our punishment, your punishment, my punishment. And then when we come to the recognition that we're in a desperate state, that I'm, I'm hopelessly lost, that, I, that I've been pursuing all kinds of things to find satisfaction, and I recognize that the treasure is Jesus, and through an act of repentance of the heart, saying, I, I'm going to abandon my idols, and I'm going to pursue Jesus, and I bend my knee, and I trust Jesus alone. I put my faith in him alone for his work on, on the cross and his resurrection. He gives you and me life. Isn't that amazing? And he takes the, uh, the, the prophet of, of uh, I think it's Isaiah, says, he Ezekiel, he says, he takes a heart of stone and he gives us a heart of flesh. And you know what happens when you get a new heart? You get new affections. Your heart changes. The desire of your heart changes towards the things that your new heart now uh, uh, pumps with. I mean, the things that your new heart now uh, desires, that's where your affections are going to go as well. And so you are forgiven completely when you trust Jesus. You're reconciled to him completely and you're declared righteous completely because of what Jesus has done. Martin Luther called this the great exchange where Jesus takes your sin upon himself and in turn, when you trust him, he gives you, he declares you righteous, he gives you his righteousness. It's an amazing thing. So this morning, if you know Jesus, Understand this, and this is what you need to live in, and this is why the gospel should impact your life every day. Not, the gospel's not just for those who don't know Jesus. The gospel's for you and me, right? We know that. And so if you know Jesus this morning, if you've, if you've trusted him, then your heavenly father this morning sees you as absolutely righteous in Christ. But that's glorious. I mean, that, we could just put an exclamation mark at that and say, just go with that in mind this week. Think about that this week. Just keep that at the center point. And, and you're going to be tracking in the right direction. The problem is that we oftentimes get distracted. Do you find yourself distracted in this life? My heart goes horizontal so quickly as opposed to vertical. Um, as you know, we don't have a best buy in Salmon Arm. Oh, maybe you don't know that. Salmon Arm's not big enough. So when you come down to Vernon or down to Cologne, I sometimes go to Best Buy. I'm going to tell you something. My heart goes horizontal in 30 seconds when I walk into Best Buy. And I see that 75-inch, you know, 4K, LED, whatever, you know, whatever. It's like, I think I need that to be happy. And I need to have that now. Otherwise, I think I'm going to die. Well, it, may, it might not be that extreme, but I know the propensity of my heart to go horizontal versus vertical. And, and for all of us, there's going to be something or there's going to be some things in our life where we're so, going to be so easily distracted, prone to wander, God, Lord, I feel it, prone to leave the God I love. 
Let thy goodness like a fetter bind my wandering heart to you, to thee. And so we're so easily distracted. Acts chapter 1, this is the text. Let me read it. If you have your Bible, open it. If you've got your phone, open it up your, up your Bible app. And we're going to read the first 11 verses. And this is what I'd like to do this morning. I'd like to give you three observations from this text and then just sort of one um, uh, sort of uh, application or one, one question out of these observations. Acts chapter 1, verse 1. In the first book, O Theophilus, I have dealt with all that Jesus began to do and teach until the day when he was taken up after he had given commands through the Holy Spirit to the apostles whom he had chosen. He presented himself alive with them after his suffering by many proofs, appearing to them during 40 days and speaking about the kingdom of God. That's important. That's an important part of the story because Jesus is speaking kingdom talk. And so the disciples have kingdom on their mind as Jesus, in these days that he's spending with them, they've got this, this sense, in these 40 days, they've got this sense of kingdom in their mind. And while staying with them, Jesus ordered them not to depart from Jerusalem, but to wait for the promise of the Father, which he said, you heard from me, for John baptized with or in water, but you will be baptized in or with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. And so when they had come together, the apostles, the disciples asked him, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom of Israel? So they're thinking kingdom. And Jesus is not speaking kingdom of Israel. He's speaking kingdom of God. And yet there's something, uh, a longing and, and a desire in the hearts of the disciples that Jesus would actually restore the kingdom of Israel. Why would they get that? Because the Old Testament promises a restored kingdom one day. And so they're thinking, maybe this is it now. We understand that Jesus is more than, you know, the next emperor. But, but Jesus, might this be the time that you're going to restore Israel, the kingdom of Israel? Now look what Jesus says. He said to them, it's not for you to know times or seasons that the Father has fixed by his authority. But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. And when he had said these things, as they were looking on, he was lifted up, and a cloud took him out of their sight. And while they were gazing into heaven, he went, behold, as he went, behold, two men stood by them in white robes and said, Men of Galilee, why do you stand looking into heaven? This Jesus who was taken up from you into heaven will come in the same way as you saw him go into heaven. And Jesus is coming back one day. Do you live with that anticipation? That Jesus is going to come back one day? That he's going to come back and take his church, his bride to be with him and those who love him? And so we've got this incredible story, and we've got three observations. It was late March, uh, a few years back, and my dad and I were skiing in Lake Louise. And um, it was, uh, you know, sp spring skiing had begun, and so the front side of Lake Louise, it was kind of getting soft and mushy. And so late morning, my dad and I decided to go up over top, and, and we skied the back, sort of those back bowls of, if you've skied at Lake Louise, back bowls of Lake Louise. And there's this chairlift called Larch chairlift. And so we skied there and the sun hadn't gotten there. And it was beautiful. The, the, the lines were less and, um, and the snow was better. 
And so we just had a great time, and we thought, we need to tell the rest of the guys that we're skiing with about this. So out at lunch, we went back down to the lodge. We said, you guys need to come up over top, and we're going to go the backside of the hill, and we're going to ski there. It's awesome. So we had our lunch, and we, uh, uh, we headed up the hill, and, then, and I was leading. And so I started skiing, and I was, I was, I mean, the snow was so, it was a sunny day, you know, one of those. And I'm skiing along, and, and um, all of a sudden, I, I get this sense as I'm skiing, I'm skiing by myself. And so I stop, and I turn around, and there's nobody following me. And then I, as I started looking around, it's like, this, this doesn't look familiar to me. This is not the same terrain that I was on this morning. I want, like, but, you know, now you're down the hill already, and you got to, you never climb back when you're skiing. You always keep going down. And I realized that I'd taken a wrong turn. Instead of bearing left, I, bear, I, I bore right. And I was now on a double black diamond hill. And I, I mean, I'm proficient. I'm, I'm quite proficient on a blue groomed hill. I can ski those all day long. But, you know, double blacks are not, especially when you're six and a half feet tall almost, and uh, your skis are long and, and I'll tell you, I got, I, I came to the edge of these, of these trees and I looked down and it was scary. There were moguls, big moguls. And there was ice, lots of ice. And there were trees and lots of trees. And I thought, okay, Lord, I'm not, and I'm not going to take my skis off, right? That's not cool either. Because if anybody happens to ski by you and you're walking down the hill, that's just not cool. So I made my way down and I, I eventually got down to the chairlift uh, down this double black diamond, and my legs were like spaghetti. I mean, I was done. Uh, I think I skied, skied two more runs, and I went back in the lodge while the other guys kept skiing. I was just finished. Well, what happened to me? I, I, I thought I was on the right track. I thought I was going in the right direction, and without me even knowing it, I was distracted. I got off track. I veered off track. And it happens to all of us. Like I said, we're, we're so prone to distraction. And that would be the first observation, even in this text, that we're prone to distraction. If you look at verses 3, uh, the last part of verse 3 where Jesus is talking about the kingdom of God. And, and he says, stay here. And then in verse 6, when they come together, the, the disciples are saying, hey, is this Jesus going to be the time that you're, gonna that you're going to restore the kingdom of Israel? And Jesus graciously and lovingly says to them, don't be distracted. It's not for you to know the times and the seasons that the Father has established. That's not for you to worry about. It's not for you to be distracted with. Now, the kingdom of God is the reign of God over, this is what Warren Wearsby says, the, reign, the kingdom of God is the reign of God over the hearts and lives of those who have trusted Jesus. It's a spiritual kingdom. The kingdom of God is present here right now in the Cineplex in Kelowna. Did you know that? Because you're here. And the kingdom of God is present in your neighborhoods because you live there. And the kingdom of God is present at the place that you work or recreate or whatever it might be in your lives from day to day. The kingdom of God is wherever you are because it's a spiritual kingdom. And that's what Jesus was talking about to his disciples. The disciples, however, wanted the kingdom of Israel to be established. It's a period of time when Jesus is going to set up an earthly kingdom in Jerusalem. And the disciples asked about the kingdom of Israel, and they said, we, we want this. We've been waiting for this. And, and here's the thing. There's nothing wrong for the disciples to have wanted that. That's, that's a good thing. If you're, man, if, if you're a follower of Jesus, but, but let's amp that up a little bit. If you're a Jew, you should long for the day that Jesus once again reigns and the kingdom of Israel is established. That's a good thing. 
And so they're asking, it's like, Jesus, is this the time that you're going to establish the kingdom of Israel? And Jesus doesn't rebuke them for that. But the natural conclusion as Jesus is speaking about the kingdom of God was because of the extensive teaching on that, this might also be the time that the kingdom of Israel is going to be established. And Jesus says, it's not for you to know the times and the dates and the seasons that the Father, it's going to happen, but don't you worry about it. Don't concern yourself with it. You don't need to know. Don't get sidetracked by it. Don't get distracted with the things that aren't for you to know. And Jesus shifts their focus away from the distraction to what their lives should be consumed with, namely the mission that he'd already told them about. And if you go back to Mark, it says it a little bit differently. If you go to Luke, it says it a little bit differently. And Matthew, uh, it says like, uh, it's, uh, Jesus says this. He says, all authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. Therefore, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit and teaching them to observe all things that I've taught you. And lo, I'm with you even to the ends of the earth. In Mark, it says, go into all the world and preach the gospel. And so Jesus once again reminds them now during these 40 days of conversation that, that, they, shouldn't be, that they shouldn't be distracted from the main mission that they're supposed to be on. Namely, you're going to be my witnesses. You will be a witness for me. You're going to testify about me. You're going to tell people about all that you've experienced the last three years. And particularly, you're going to tell people about my death and my burial and my resurrection, that I'm alive today and that I want to change people's lives. Disciples, don't be distracted. Your mission is be a witness for me. Talk about me. Let me permeate you, he says to them. And so their hearts and their minds, even having spent three years with Jesus and seeing everything that he'd done, their minds and their hearts needed to be recalibrated and, and brought back into line because they were looking for the kingdom of Israel. And Jesus says, don't worry about that. It's going to happen one day, but you're going to be my witnesses. So don't be distracted with that. Stay single-minded. Stay focused. Stay fixated on the mission. Be gospel-minded. You need to live your life with the gospel at the center of your life. Always be mindful of everything that Jesus has done for you. And in turn, always be mindful of, of what Jesus has done for the people that you are around and be witnesses to that gospel. Be witnesses to me. There are many things that we can be distracted with. And here's the thing. Just like the disciples, being distracted is always wrong even if it's with good things. So the disciples, they were asking a legitimate question. And the conversation about the kingdom of Israel is not a wrong conversation. It's just not what they're supposed to be focused on. And, and, and this is so applicable in my life. There are so many things that, and, and good things. My family can be a distraction to me. Your family can be a distraction to me. I grew up in a, you know, a, a bit of a Mennonite background, although I'm, I'm not, uh, we've, I've never attended a Mennonite church, but you know, that whole Mennonite culture, family is pretty important. And, and I, could, I can see, and I've seen it as, as a pastor out in Manitoba and, and out in Prince Edward Island for a few years, I can see how family can be a distraction to Christians. We need to be careful about that. We, we can be distracted with our jobs and, and, the, and the vocations that God has given me. I, I wonder how many people looking back in their life are going to, or, or have said, or will say one day, maybe, 
maybe this will just be a, a recalibration for all of our hearts to say, man, I, I wasted a lot of time focusing on something that I gave way too much attention to. It's not that you shouldn't work. You should be the, as a follower of Jesus, you should be the best employee or the best employer in your company. But don't let that distract you from your primary mission. Our retirement and our, 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 uh, you know, our investments can so easily become a distraction to us where that becomes the focal point. And we, uh, it, it, if you have you guys, you know who Francis Chan is? He does this great illustration. He, if, just look up Francis Chan on YouTube and uh, Rope and Eternity. And he's got this long, long rope. It's, I don't know, maybe 40, 50 feet long. And he's got this, this little piece uh, at the end with a tape wrapped on it. And he says, this is your life compared to, to eternity. And he pull, starts pulling this rope. And it's so long. And it's like, and yet we fixate on this part. And then he says, and what we really do is we fixate on the last quarter of that little piece of, of, of uh, you know, tape. Namely our retirement. And what we forget as followers of Jesus is that there's eternity. And he just keeps pulling this rope. And, and yet we, we, we focus so much on the temporal. We are, and, and, and that's a battle that you and I need to fight every day. This battle of distraction, we can so easily be distracted. I, I will stand in line first to admit that that's my problem. I'm so easily distracted. Can I say this? That ministry can be a distraction? It's possible. And I mean, that's been my world for most of my adult years has been ministry. And I can get so caught up in ministry that I forget my mission. The mission that Jesus called you and me to. That I'm supposed to be a witness for Jesus. I'm supposed to be mindful about the gospel, the work of the gospel in my life, but also proclaim. Witnesses are not silent, right? We know that. Like if you get a, somebody on the witness stand and they don't talk, kind of useless. Witnesses speak. Witnesses talk. Which means that if you're going to be a witness for Jesus, you need to speak. You need to talk about him. You need to have him so ingrained in your life that it's just natural in your conversations, even with your friends who don't know Jesus. And, and you should have friends who don't know Jesus. You should, if you don't have friends who don't know Jesus, you're not following Jesus, his model. He was a friend of who? Friend of sinners. So you should have friends who don't know Jesus so that you could be a witness. That's an observation that we are prone to distraction. And I think this is one of the best strategies of the devil. I mean, think about this. If you're, if you're in a warfare against somebody else and the devil is, he, he is going around like a roaring lion uh, prowling around like a roaring lion, seeing whom he could devour. You. He wants to eat you today. He wants to eat your faith. And if he was going to be strategic about how he's going to get you to be silent, it would be, well, let's just distract them. Let's just distract them from what they really should focus. And you know what? He does a great job in us being distracted with a lot of good things. The good can become the robber of the best. And so we're, we're consumed and we're busy and we're doing all kinds of stuff and yet it's not what Jesus has called us to. And so Jesus says, don't worry about it. It's good. Kingdom of Israel is good. But don't be distracted with that. Here's the second observation. That our focus needs to be our mission. Our focus needs to be our mission. So, so the thing that we shouldn't get distracted from is our mission. And so that, if I could just encourage you again this morning and I've, I've been on your website and I've heard Pastor Melvin preached, and I've heard some of the other preachers online, and I know what you're, it's about gospel here and, and living that out 
through the great commandment, the great commission, the great commandment. You guys talk about that. That's part of your DNA here at Harvest. So this isn't new for most of you. But can I just remind you that your focus needs to continue to be on your mission. And a mission is simply an assignment. A mission is a task. It's a, it's a charge. And God has, Jesus, has placed, if you're a follower of his this morning, he's placed on you and on me a, a charge, a, a, a task, an assignment. And our assignment, our task, our charge is clearly defined here. You will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you shall be my witnesses. It's the gospel. For God's glory, pointing people to Jesus so that they too might taste God's great mercy and grace, that they might embrace that treasure that you found, and they would eat the bread that you've tasted, and they drink the water that quenches their thirst for eternity, that you'd be part of that telling others that that's available to them. I mean, think about this. One day you're going to be standing before God and your neighbor, I mean, this is probably not going to happen, but, but could you just let your mind go there? And, and your neighbor's standing beside you and they say, why did you never tell me that, that I could have had bread that, that satisfies me forever and drink that would quench my thirst forever? Why didn't you ever tell me about that? Or your coworkers and and, you know, and this is where the beauty of God's sovereignty works into this all, that, that we should, um, a preacher I heard not too long ago said, we should preach like we're Arminians, in other words, that other people's salvation depends on us, but we should sleep like Calvinists, right? To, to put our head on the pillow at night and say, this is not, like, I, I need to do what I'm called to do, plant the seed, preach the gospel, but leave the rest to God. But how are you doing with the proclamation? How are you doing with the, being a witness? And so we need to be about our mission, about pointing people to Jesus. That they too might embrace Jesus as their bread of life. And because we have a mission, we are what? Missionaries. Right? If, you, if you're on a mission, then you're a missionary. Anyone who's been sent on a mission to accomplish the assignment, the task, the charge is called a missionary. That's an extra biblical term. But let me just say something about this ever so briefly. I grew up in Germany. My mom and dad are what we would call missionaries. I was one year old when we went to Germany. And so I have in my heart engraved, burned deep in my heart, a high view of those who've been called into cross-cultural ministry context, gospel context. There's there is something very special about people who have been called, and, and maybe you know some of these kinds of people who were in your church, and now they're serving Jesus overseas somewhere. And, and the title that we normally give these people is missionary. And that's not wrong language. Understand, it's not wrong to say these people are missionaries. What is wrong is to say that you're not a missionary. That's what is wrong. And that's a fear of mine that, 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 that there's this bit of a, this church myth that only people who, are, who go overseas or to other lands to be witnesses for Jesus are called missionaries. In the truest sense of our call as disciples, that is, a, that is falsehood and that's a myth. Everyone who is on, on mission should be a missionary. And, and God has raised you up here in Kelowna at your job, in your neighborhood, on your hockey team or in your sailing club or whatever you do recreationally. God has set you up in order to be a witness for him. You are a missionary in that context. And we can't forget that. You're a missionary. And you need to serve Jesus faithfully. Now there is gifting without a doubt. 
There are those, and I think that when, when in, in the New Testament, particularly when that term apostle is used, I think sometimes, small a, not capital A like we read, where, where the, you know, the apostles, where we equate that to the disciples, the 12 chosen ones, but small a, the gift of apostleship, I think that had to, and the word apostle simply means one who's been sent. And so there's this sense that there are going to be those who have a special calling, uh, a special office of being on, on mission, Namely, these, these, well, let's call them missionaries. It's not wrong to say that. But, but can I just encourage you that you need to remember that you're a missionary too? As you, as you leave here today, and you're going to go have lunch somewhere, and somebody's going to serve you, or tomorrow when you go to work, or whatever it might look like. And, and it's not that you need to be, uh, you need to be wise as serpents and harmless as doves. You need to be wise in terms of how you talk about Jesus but usually that's not my fear. As, as I've been a pastor, it's not, there have been a handful of people It's like, you need to back off a little bit. You need to, most of the time it's like, would you say something about Jesus? Could, could, could you say something about your relationship with him? And so I'd like to encourage you from this text this morning that your focus, that my focus needs to be on my mission. And what I find fascinating here in this text is that there's no differentiation between the ones who have been called to the ends of the earth and Jerusalem. Because he says, you're going to be my witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and the uttermost parts of the earth. And that's sort of, we'll talk about that in a second here, but, but there's no, it's not like, oh, and those of you in Jerusalem, you're not missionaries, only those who go to the ends of the earth. It doesn't say that. It says, no matter where you're at, you're on mission. So keep the mission as your focus. Be a gospel-minded person. The gospel's penetrating your own heart and that you're willing to share that gospel with others. Here's the third observation. We must open our eyes to our need or to the need. We must open our eyes to the need around us. And, and, and let me just reference this now again. Jesus says, you can be my witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and to the remotest parts of the earth. Uh, we often skip over this part of, uh, this, part of this text or, or sometimes we reference uh, these words as the mission's ripple effect strategy, right? You know, you drop a, a stone in a, in, a, in a really smooth pond and you know the ripple effects and it's like, well, it starts in Judea and then it goes to, to Judea, uh, sorry, it starts in Jerusalem then it, it goes to Judea and, and the ripple effect goes out to Samaria and then ultimately to the ends of the earth. And that's about all that we sort of take note of, maybe. But w- can I just point something out to you? That when Jesus is talking about this, he wants them to understand the great need. I think he wants them to understand the great need. And the uttermost parts of the earth is sort of the exclamation mark. But could we start in Jerusalem for a minute? Back in Jesus' day, there, it's estimated that there would have been about five to 600,000 people in Jerusalem. That's a lot of people. And can you remember in the upper room in Acts chapter 2 how many followers of Jesus were gathered together. This was, this was it in terms of followers of Jesus. This was it. Can you remember how many? 120, close. 120 disciples gathered in that upper room waiting, waiting like Jesus says, wait until the Holy Spirit comes. And there they are. They're worshiping. They're praying. 120. And 120 people, Jesus says, you need, need to be my witnesses. Start in Jerusalem. There's 600, 500, 600,000 people. Would you be my witnesses? I mean, so we already in this room have more people than were in the upper room. And these disciples, because of their obedience to the, to the call to this mission, and by God's grace and the empowerment of the Holy Spirit, turned the world upside down. It's why, you know, those disciples back then, it's why we're sitting here at the Cineplex today. Because the gospel reached the shores of North America. 
And there somewhere along the line, you heard about Jesus and the, and the cross and all that he's done for you. And at one moment in history, you, and maybe you can't even remember when it was, but you turned your heart to Jesus and said, Lord Jesus, I want you as my bread of life. You're my water that's going to quench my thirst. I embrace you as my life. Why? Because these 120 people were faithful to the call. And by the power of the Holy Spirit, they were able to go and be witnesses for Jesus. On October 30th, 2011, two minutes before midnight, Danica May Camacho was born in Jose Fabela Hospital in Manila. Little Danica was the seven billionth person to enter the world. Well, that's who they're saying. It might have been, you know, Jack down in Tucson, Arizona. I don't know, but they happened to pick Danica in the Philippines, seven billionth person in the entire world. And the population stats say that our world population is growing at 250,000 people a day. So kind of like Kelowna, one clone every day. I think Kelowna might be a little bit more, but right around there, right? So every, every day in this world, there are Kelownas being born. And, that, and that's, 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 that, that's growth. That's not, that's not taking into, that is taking into consideration people are dying. So our world population is growing at about 250,000 people a day. And today we're right around the 7.5 billion people mark in this world. Do we get this? Does this somehow move us? That there's a need out there and that Jesus called you, follower of Jesus, to be his witness? To taste and see that he's good? To taste and have their hunger satisfied and their thirst quenched and to find that treasure where they're willing to give everything up and get that because that really matters. Not just today. It, matter, it matters huge today, but it matters even more in eternity, doesn't it? There's going to be coming a day when, like, the Bible says three score and ten is what you're going to be given. So some people live more than 70 years. My mom and dad are in their 80s. But there will come a day when you're going to take your last breath and eternity starts. And um, it matters what you believe today. It'll determine where you spend eternity. Jesus went through all the cities and villages we read in Matthew, teaching in their synagogues and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom and healing every disease and every affliction. And when he saw the crowds, do you see the crowds? I do. I mean, I, I can't stand, I'm going to be honest with you. I'm going to make a salmon arm confession to you, Kelowna people. I hate driving through salmon or through Kelowna in the summer. It takes, sometimes it takes me an hour to just drive down 97 and get to West Kelowna. You, you guys, you feel my pain? Yeah. And I see the crowds all right, and I feel like honking at them all and shaking my fists, like, get out of my way. <laughs> and when it says Jesus saw the crowds, he had compassion on them. And in the Greek, it has this idea that, um, that, his, in, that his innards were moved. They, you, you ever get the butterfly feeling? Or, or, or if you've ever grieved somebody, losing somebody, and you know that internal turmoil, that you actually, there's an actual feeling internally, that's what it's talking about. And it says that Jesus was moved with compassion. His in, insides were moving with compassion because they were harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. And then he said to his disciples, the harvest is plentiful. Hmm. Harvest Bible Chapel. The harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. Therefore, pray earnestly to the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into his harvest. And there's an estimate that over 3.2 3 billion people, 
3.2 billion people in this world have never heard the name Jesus. It's a lot of people. Well, somehow that doesn't resonate with me. I mean, I, it's too staggering for me to even sort of synthesize. Let me say to, to, to you this way. Let's put it into Canadian context. 77% of Canadians don't attend church, 77, which leaves 23% that do. So 23% of Canadians go to church, and out of those 23%, just a handful go to Bible-preaching, gospel-proclaiming churches like Harvest Bible Chapel Kelowna. Uh, there's an estimate, and I would venture to say it's probably high, that 8 to 10, 12% of people in Canada would consider themselves evangelical. So let's go with 10%. I think that's generous. 10% of people in Canada know Jesus. Do you know what that means tomorrow morning when you're on your way to work or when you're in the mall or whatever you do, or this afternoon? For every 10 people that pass by you, nine of them are going to hell. That ought to stagger our hearts. That ought to, some, if, if that doesn't move you and me as followers of, G, of Jesus, some, I mean, we just need to say, Lord Jesus, would you, would you do something in our hearts that would somehow move our affections towards the same affections that you have, Lord Jesus? Nine out of 10 people here in Kelowna, on average, don't know Jesus, and they're pursuing satisfaction. That's, that's a crazy thing. They're looking for what you have. It's crazy. They want to be satisfied. And McJagger sings what? Can't find no satisfaction. Why? Because he never has gone to Jesus. He's never gone to the source of true satisfaction. And you have, if you know Jesus this morning, brother, sister, understand that you have something that people are desperately looking for. Now, now it's up to you to be wise in how you communicate that, how you talk about that. And so Jesus reminds his disciples, stay focused. So can I end with a few questions and then a challenge? How have you been distracted? You take time, maybe even today, just for a few minutes, somewhere along the line to say, Lord Jesus, where in my life have I been distracted from what you've called me to, to be a witness? Can I ask you this? When's the last time you actually talked to somebody about Jesus, somebody who doesn't know him? When's the last time? You know, I, I, I would hope that in this church, and I know Pastor Melvin's heart, and you guys are getting together on Wednesday night to pray for this very thing. So this is, not, this is not like, oh, wow, this is, I've never heard this before. You guys hear this all the time. I know you do. And so I would be stunned if, if many of you aren't regularly sharing your faith. Can I just, can I pour some fuel on that for you? You'd be talking to people about Jesus. Uh, there's always a risk, right? Because the people you talk about this stuff, they may not, care for it so much. And the risk you run is rejection. But I'm going to tell you something. It's not worth being ashamed before men about Jesus, lest he be shamed about you before his heavenly father. So be bold. Be bold. What does your life look like in terms of the mission? How are you engaging? And like I said earlier, do you have unbelieving friends in your life? Are you hanging out with people who don't know Jesus? You need to be. You need to be intentional about that. You need to be thinking about how am I doing this? For, I mean, I, I, as a pastor, and then now as a, a director of a Bible college campus, I, I hang out with a lot of Christians all the time. So for me, as I'm, te- as, you know, as I'm talking to our students and encouraging them to be involved in missions, it's like, well, Steve, what are you doing? And three years ago, I realized I need to do something. I love cars, and in Winnipeg, I was part of a car club not so much in, in Salmon Arm. And so I joined the fire department, the Tappan Sunnybury Fire Department. 
Not because I've had dreams of being a fireman. Never. I mean, that's, I was intrigued. I'm not there because, you know, some sort of uh, hero instinct needs to be satisfied in me. I'm there because there's 25 guys and gals who don't know Jesus. It's the only reason I'm there. If it weren't for that, I would not go to another practice on Tuesday nights or on any more fire calls. I go there specifically because I need to hang out with people who don't know Jesus. It's, a, it's an intentional choice on my part. Now, that's, that's one story that God gets glory for. There's a lot of other times when I'm shy and quiet and I don't speak the way I should and bold like I ought to be. Can I ask you to see the multitudes? Could, could, could you maybe today ask God to let you see the multitudes that you live around as people who don't know him? And then let me just challenge you with this. It's in a form of a question. What, what would the outplay look like if Jesus' mission was going to be your center point? What would the outplay of Jesus' mission, uh, what would it look like in your life if you would get up every morning and say, Lord Jesus, I'm on, I'm on a mission. I'm on a mission for you today. Would you open doors, close doors, give me words, give me boldness, give me, give me wisdom to say, to keep my mouth shut when I shouldn't say anything? And, and I think that that's the desire of, of, of your leadership team here. And would it be the desire of your heart that you would be engaged every morning? So Lord Jesus, help me to be your witness. Help me not to be distracted. Help me see the multitudes. And then for his glory, be faithful to him. Lord Jesus, thank you so much that you love us Thank you that our uh, acceptance before you does not depend on how good we do with this or not. Our acceptance before you, Heavenly Father, is based only and solely on what Jesus has done for us and his righteousness. And yet, those of us who have experienced that and tasted that, we desire now to be faithful witnesses for you. So give us courage and boldness. Help us not to be distracted. Help us to see the multitudes. Help us to embrace your mission as the centerpiece, the gospel that would be gospel-minded for your glory and for your honor, we pray in Jesus' name.